Today on the Eastern Target Archery Podcast, a very special guest, a close friend of mine, someone I've known for almost 30 years, Juan Carlos Holgado, an Olympic athlete in 1988-92, who also coached in 1996 and 2000 at the Olympic Games. He's probably best well known as the Olympic gold medalist of Barcelona 1992 in the team event when he helped lead the Spanish team to a glorious victory under the watchful eyes of the King of Spain, thousands of spectators at the first event that we've had in modern archery that had a huge and enthusiastic spectator turnout with the new Olympic round that Jim Easton and others had implemented. Uh, pretty much the culmination of an effort that had gone on for many years. But JC is much more than that, much more than just a national archery champion multiple times in Spain, much more than a record holder, much more than just an archer. JC has been one of the powerhouses behind what has made archery and the world of archery so visible today and so accessible to so many people. And it is my very great pleasure to have you on today, Juan Carlos Holgado. Hi, my friend. The pleasure is mine. And uh, thank you for the amazing introduction. Um, I still have things to do in archery, but so far, I think I have helped a lot. I've given back to the sport what the sport has given to me, which is one of my goals. So shoot me. Questions? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think the best place to start is from the beginning. You know, at the age of nine, you picked up a bow and began to shoot. And maybe tell us a little bit about those early years, what it was like in Spain and what archery was like at that time. Okay. I started eight years old, but in Germany, which I think not many people know. My parents were there as immigrant working and my father was an amateur archer. And on the weekends, uh, he was going to a local club in Germany, Feucht, in the middle of the Black Forest. And as it was one hour drive, I was going with my family and uh, going to a middle of a place, uh, getting bored. I got the bow, started shooting. And I think I was a bit dangerous, was shooting to anything that was around birds, trees, cans. And uh, there was a moment someone said, guy, you have to follow some rules and you have to shoot to a target. So I started shooting a target and it was doing pretty okay. So at the, at the age of 10, uh, my parents decided to move back to Spain and I already was shooting as an amateur in, in Germany, moved to Spain to a little city called Cáceres, lovely city, but 80,000 inhabitants, where archery was really rare sport. And that's what my story of a black sheep started. I was, everybody was playing football in Spain, soccer for you guys. And uh, I was doing archery. So first question was, uh, why you choose archery? Is it really a sport uh, where you can do that? And I was training in the uh, middle of nowhere in the outside of the city alone, no coach. Believe it or not, there was no internet. There was no manuals. I think the first thing I read about coaching was a manual from John Williams and then something from Rick McKinley. Uh, I guess they're very well-known archers there, but for me, were like a god. They were the only thing I got information to try to improve. So I train alone, more or less three, four hours per day, and I train all the mistakes that an archer can have. I had it. So at the age of 14 years old, I started competing nationally and I started seeing some archers shooting much better than me in the form. And I decided I wanted to become the best archer in Spain. So I wanted to train harder, learn from the best and, and be, become the best, best archer in Spain. And I was doing other sports. One of them was handball. And at the age of 15, I went to Olympic training center in Madrid. And imagine that was heaven. It was 26 sport, 2,000 athletes, all the facilities you needed. So my, my dream was to go there. I went back to my home. I told my parents, I will go to Madrid to Olympic Center. And of course, my parents looked to me and said, like, you are crazy. That's not possible. But uh, I talked to my club. My club said it was not possible. I talked to the Spanish Federation. They say it was not possible. So we decided, my mother and myself, to write to the Minister of Sport. And after 10 letters, we received an answer that don't write us anymore. Let's have a meeting in Madrid. So we moved to Madrid and uh, believe it or not, I got a scholarship. Uh, they asked me why I wanted to go there. I said, I want to be the best archer in Spain. And uh, they gave me a try. I said, okay, let's come one year, try, and let's see how it goes. In the Olympic center, when I arrived at the age of uh, 17, um, there was no archery coach. We didn't have a specialized coach 
professionally dedicated to archery. So my first coach was a coach of handball and a specialist in biomechanic. And he told me, I will learn archery with you. Imagine George, my technique and form was terrible. I tried to improve. And my coach was going to be a guy who was learning with me. So he did his best to, to change me from an archer to an athlete. Uh, we started making physical training, which in this time was very rare, going to a fitness three, four times per week. I started training in any kind of condition, raining. In Spain, people used to shoot in this time only when it was sunny. And I was the first one shooting in rain, storm, snow, in any condition. And after a year, I became national champion, beat several records, and was the time that we got the Olympic Games for 1992, the sport changed in Spain, and the Minister of Sport decided to give eight scholarship to archery and improve the, the, the training for, for Olympic sport. And that's why my first dream became true, became the best archer in Spain. And more or less professionally, I was getting paid to do it and training with another seven archers with a professional coach, Victor Sidoruk, who was hired from Russia to, to help the Spanish team to follow the Olympic dream. So that was a little bit my start. So at this point uh, in 1987 or so, you have Victor Sidoric, a legendary coach, also a legendary archer himself, uh, a great accomplished shooter, shot in the 72 games. And um, you were basically the first archer to get full national government support for archery in Spain. Yep, I was. I wanted to be fully dedicated to Spain to archery. I wanted, as I say, wanted to be the best archer in Spain, more or less professional. And when I mean professional, it's not the money, it's the dedication to, to have a program, to have a, a physical coach uh, or physical program, mental coach. I was the first archer in Spain working with a sports psychologist, with a, which uh, for many of the archers around me proved that I was a bit crazy. You need a sports psychologist, so you have problems. <laughs> and, in fact, after a year and a half, it worked out and uh, I was shooting really good uh, compared to a level in Spain. Internationally, it was the average or low, but you have to think that in the 86, 87, we were not one of the top countries in the world. And uh, just being in the middle uh, was a great success. So uh, yes, I asked for this uh, opportunity and I was the first archer to get a full scholarship in the Olympic Center. I was the first archer to make archery as a living. So a few years later, I could have my full dedication in archery. I was combining it with my studies in university, but imagine uh, uh, the, the physical education degree that I was studying physical education and sports science. It's normally takes five years and it took me 12 years to finish with all the training camps, traveling, but I finished it and did uh, two master degrees. So combining with sport, which is a lot of effort, but I'm very proud to have finalized both things. But yes, I was professionally dedicated to shoot. And of course, in the road to, to Barcelona 92, 1990, 1991, we were getting financial support from the government. And after the medal, I could keep my professional status until in 1996, our performance was not so good. And then I turned to become a coach. But I think that's the next chapter of my life. Sure. But, you know, the, the, that next chapter, the foundation for all of that was laid down by that 12-year effort in education. The background that you had in terms of both the coaching side and the administrative side that, you know, we'll talk about later. Um, certainly were, were laid, that foundation was laid by that effort. And I think that it gave you a grounding. You weren't just shooting, you were maybe seeking more even at that time from the standpoint of uh, accomplishment in the sport. Yeah, you are totally right. Now looking back, I can see it. But when those times I was just trying to, to learn as much as possible, to, to overcome the challenge, to be in a place that we have no coaches, no knowledge. And I had really, I was hungry to learn more. And that's mean not only trying to shoot better, but become physically better, manage better the motion, get more knowledge in other, other signs, other areas. And uh, I was sure that I, I need much more knowledge than just shooting. And that's why I decided to make physical education and sports science. And to be honest, all was around archery. I wanted to learn more about anatomy to understand better the biomechanics of the shooting. I wanted to learn more about physiology to understand how to recover faster. So 
let's say that archery in my life started at nine, but at 14 became an obsession. All around what I was doing was about archery. To get some money, I was giving archery classes. I started the archery university school when I was uh, 19 to get some income. In the lunch breaks I had, I went, uh, I was giving classes to university students just in front of the faculty sport of the Olympic Center. So all around my life since I was 14 has been archery. So I think that has been the, the unique combination, having been able to be an athlete, a coach, study and educate myself in sports science adapted to archery, sport administration, and then uh, becoming part of the International Federation to, to work in changing our sport to what is right now. So a yes, unique and situation and 360 around the sport. And you've had a big impact since you joined FITA and later you know, became World Archery. That started in 1999 um, when you became the chairman of the World Archery Coaches Committee. Um, that led to the first International Coaches Seminar, something that is um, something that coaches look forward to um, annually now. But at that time, it was a new concept. Tell us a little bit about that, that effort. Well, that was a, a shocking event. In 1999, I received a, a, a message from Jimmy Stone, which for me was the FITA president this time, and asking me to, to candidate for the coaches committee. I was shocked. So, like, I'm, I'm not known. I'm nobody. I'm from Spain. I don't know any coach from Spain that you will ask for leading the coaches in the world. But Jim said, no, no, Juan Carlos, I want you there. Uh, I believe you can do things, so please candidate. So I asked my federation to run for this position without any expectation to be elected. And guess what? I was elected. And not only this, uh, after that, Jim wanted me to be the chairman of the coaches committee. So I said, Jim, Jim, stop, stop. <laughs> okay, you have Pascal Colmer, who got more votes than me. He was very well known. And saying, Juan Carlos, I want you. I want you to do things that before didn't happen. So my question was, so Jim, what do you expect from me? And say, okay, first of all, get the knowledge, what is around, and share it. Because in, in this time, George, you know, you are as young as me. The feeling was that there was secrets that people didn't want to share. The Korean has secrets, the American has secrets, the Russian has secrets. And, and Jim was very eager to, to try to make this knowledge available and share knowledge for developing the sport. The second thing he told me, we will have to make a manual, a coach's manual which for a long time was one of the mission of the previous coaches committee, but didn't happen. And then he wanted me to have a kind of seminar or, or coaches a workshop where prestige or the top coaches were sharing the knowledge. So that was in 1999. In 2000, we did the first coaches seminar in Madrid uh, with the help of Vicente Martinez and the Federation of Madrid and Spain in this time. And then in 2001, we launched with Pascal Colmer and uh, 14 coaches, I would think, uh, some of the best ones in which uh, Don Rapska was there and some uh, Kisik Lee, Kim Yuntak, some of the well-known uh, names were collaborating and we launched uh, the level coaches course level one that right now is translated, I think, in 12 or 13 languages and was the start what Jim wanted. So in 2000, Two, we had the three goals that Jim wanted accomplished. And I, I feel very proud of that because I was not so well known, but the trust that uh, FITA and this time, that Jim and the board and, and my mentor is Don Rapska gave me, helped me to, to succeed in, the, in these goals and, and help uh, what actually FITA and this time to reach the goals they wanted. The next step after making those accomplishments was your appointment as the manager for the archery event of the Athens Olympic Games, specifically the technical operations manager, but it's really more than that. You, you basically <laughs> had to do everything um, from, <laughs> from you know, building things to hiring people to uh, the logistics are mind boggling to me. You know, I had a small job to do at that event that was everything I could do and you were doing everything. I mean, everything. And it was an amazing event by the time you were done. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to live in Greece and, and help put on that momentous Olympic event in Panathinaikos Stadium. I think we need three podcasts for this. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, let's try to make it short. 
in between 2001, I, well, in 1996, I became head coach of the Spanish team. And in 2001, there was a change of federation. Let's say with the Spanish team, I felt I was quite successful, changing the mentality and making the team younger, stronger, with more talent involved. After 1992, there was only the three of us. The rest of the archers has a huge difference, and my work was to close this gap. So in 2001, was a new president coming. We have known agreement, so I stopped coaching and was with uh, World Archery, Jimmy Stone, and this time Tom Dillon asked me to help in develop other countries to do what I did in Spain, running seminar with Olympic Society or with the uh, FITA the, uh, development department. So I, I help, I think, more than 14 or 15 countries in Latin America, some in Europe, running seminars, helping with coaches courses and uh, programs, development program, and uh, working close to Pascal Colmer and the FITA office. And it was a fantastic time because feeling that you can help countries to become better, like Colombia, Venezuela, uh, Brazil, Mexico, uh, just to, to mention a few of them, was amazing. And in this time, in 2002, Jim asked me for a meeting and said, oh, Juan Carlos, we need your help. I want to, you to go to Greece. And my first reaction was, oh, do you want me to run a seminar to help the Federation? I said, no, 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 I want you to organize the games. I said, but Jim, I, I have never organized the games. I don't know what is organizing big events like that. The, the biggest thing I organized was the University World Championship, and that's like a, a minor league compared to Olympic Games. Again, that's why you want me there. And I will never forget, he told me, Juan Carlos, you solve impossible missions, and this is an impossible mission. <laughs> so, Jim, but what do you mean? First of all, they are late. Second, the, pers the people involved in the archery competition are coming, are coming from the shooting federation, so they don't know much about our sport. And third, it's very hard to communicate with them. And so I need someone I trust in the organizing committee doing it best to deliver a good event because archery was on threat on this time in the Olympic program. And you know, in 1992, we were in this, in this level of sport that were considered that maybe they should not be in the games. And our Olympic medal saved the team competition that was on thread in this time. So 1996, there was a discussion, maybe the individual part of archery should not be there and the team is what should be there. And with the victory and the, the great win of uh, Justin Huish in 1996, again, put our sport in a, in a safe place, but we were still on the bottom. So in Athens, the discussion was maybe the sport should not be there. We were not so excited. We were not so, so popular on TV. And of course, Jim was always very worried to put us in a, in a safe place, in a, in a place that there was no risk to go out of Olympic program, which wouldn't be an, a, a disaster for the development of our sport. So the, the mission was go there, do your best, and make sure that the archery competition is run properly and is one of the best sports in the games. <laughs> so imagine that was uh, a very important mission. I said, okay, Jim, when do you want me to go? And he said, as soon as possible. Remember, they are late. So the week after, I was in Greece. I took uh, my girlfriend, Rachel, and we went to Greece. And it was an amazing uh, part of my life. People in Greece are fantastic. They are fun, lovely people. Uh, to be friends, to enjoy life, and to have dinner. But to work, I tell you, it's very, uh -huh. very, challenging. <laughs> very challenging. They really need the 100 gods they have in Greece to make things happen. It was change of culture, habits, things Deadlines does not exist. Things happen well, somehow, but no one really put their hands to make things happen. So that's ending what you saw in doing more or less a bit of everything. I became, I, I started to learn of everything, electrical cables, it, um, connections, uh, carpenter, scaffolding. So I knew a bit of everything and I was expert on nothing. So I just had to understand how things work build a plan A, a plan B, and a plan C. And most of the time, the plan B and C is what was working. The plan A very often, or most of the time, never worked. So that was an amazing experience. And luckily, and thanks to the team I had, some Greek archers, which I motivate them by saying, if you work as I want, I coach you. Remember, there were no coaches there, so they wanted me to coach right. them, and that was the deal. <laughs> The weekends I coach you, but you become the, the, the stuff I want. And it was a fantastic team, great guys who have to say that after a few months, they 
They really did what I wanted, how I wanted, and they forgot they were Greeks and they became more Germans. <laughs> <laughs> then, of course, uh, we, we trained the volunteer with one of the only sports that all the volunteers, the 112 volunteers we have in archery, they tried the sport. We did archerization. I wanted all the volunteers to understand what the sport was about. And so we had three months or every weekend training them by functional areas. They were coming to Ethnicos, to a fantastic uh, private club that you have the Acropolis in the back. And we give them an art initiation, a pizza time and some team building. And I think that's safe in the archery competition because when I needed help, I had 112 volunteers that were willing to do anything I wanted at any time without any question. And that's in a competition that you have nine to 10 days, it's a gold. Organizing triathlon is one, two, three days, and you can lose 20% of volunteers. But in a competition of 10 days, you can miss, you can lose half of them and we will be dead. So I think that was a little bit the, the success of building a great team, make them understand what archery is about. They all knew how difficult it is to hit a target, a center at 70 meters. And I think we did a bit different with compared to other sports. Every volunteer was trained in three positions. You know, when you're a volunteer in a sport, you want to be where the athletes are. You want to be on TV. Sure. <laughs> you want to be in the field of play. So when you go a volunteer and you are in charge of changing the towers and the changing room is not very motivating. So what we did to keep them all motivated is they, we trained them in three roles. And... Uh, Every volunteer has been at, at least one or twice in the field of play with the athletes. And that was also a, a great motivation that's helped to keep the, the volunteers. It so also it gave you a lot of flexibility because if you had somebody specialized and then maybe they turned up sick one day or something, you have a problem. But if you have volunteers who are trained, cross-trained in many areas, then you have a lot more flexibility. And you're right, but uh, the Greek don't get sick. Yeah, <laughs> No, just a job, but it's true. There was more or less nobody sick. Everybody turned out. Everybody was there really to work. And what was more amazing, everybody was on time, which in Greece is also a kind of challenge. And, and I hope the Greeks yes. don't get it personal because the Spanish also, we have a reputation for not being time. <laughs> my, uh, Juan Carlos, as you know, my mother, my mother is from Crete. So if any Greeks <laughs> listening to this take offense, you can take offense at me too. I'm one of you. So <laughs> no, no, I, the things are like they are. And as I said at the beginning, they are lovely people. I have many Greek friends and I, I enjoy spending time with them and enjoying the lovely country. But to work on deadlines, I prefer the Germans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no question. The, yes. the, the, the grounding that that, successful effort gave you, however, led to the very next opportunity for you, which started in 2005, when still FIDA, uh, World Archery, um, wanted to start a new concept and bring its events to a higher level. And so in 2005, you became the events director of FIDA, and you had a key role in creating the World Cups that we have today, as well as the very professionally produced World Championship events. Um, would you say it's fair to say that that Olympic experience is, is partly responsible for what you were able to bring to the field starting in 2005? Yes, of, of course. The Olympic experience gave me a lot of knowledge and confidence to deliver something that was a dream or was a goal in, in FITA in this time, which is having a, a continuous circuit every year. Remember in this time we had World Championship every two years, Olympic yep. every four, and some continental events also every two years, but it was difficult. I don't know if you're aware, in 2004, all the sports got evaluated by the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, um, with 12 criteria. And archery was very good in eight, but it was very poor in four of them. And this was ticketing. We were not a sport selling tickets, which means we didn't have spectators paying to see the sport. We had not many sponsors. So there was no sponsorship programs in, in our sport. We were very low in TV rights or in visibility on television and very poor in the newspaper or media interest. So these four elements are very much linked to events. So it was uh, the vision and the goal of uh, Professor Dr. Urden Renner, our current president, and Tom Dillon, 
which uh, they were clearly focused on changing this and making an annual circuit for five events that end in a final, which uh, we could uh, compensate all this weakness we have in the evaluation, get it more sponsored, more visibility on TV, spectators, so we get some tickets. I remember in 2005, when we were talking that we want to sell tickets for people to watch event, it was like, this is crazy. No one paid to come to see archery. And look now, we have sometimes four or 3,000 spectators watching the finals in a world championship, even more. So yes. in this time, uh, when 2004 finished, uh, president, uh, candidate of president this time, Professor Dr. Udel Vener, and, and Tom approached me and said, we would like you to, to come to War Archery. Uh, Jim was uh, in this time president and also asked me, I wanted to come to, to FITA to try to run events more professionally, especially in the level of the Olympic. And uh, that was a huge challenge. As I survived the challenge of Athens, because at the end was quite successful competition, which many of the IOC members came to see the stadium and discover and enjoy the sport. Remember with the Panathinaikon Stadium, the historical stadium of the modern Olympic Games. So many of the VIPs, Olympic family or IOC members came to see the stadium, to be honest or to visit gym. And then they were engaged or hooked with the, with the excitement of the competition. So after this successful uh, archery competition in the games, the goal was to make a circuit in, in world archery. And there was discussion before in FITA to, to do this, but really nobody started. So with uh, Jim and Ur Vision and with the support of Tom Dillon, we started the World Cup in 2006. And 2005 was a, the time to learn to discuss, to, to brainstorm how we wanted to do it. We knew a little bit what we wanted to have an outcome, but how to make it happen was a challenge. So I have been very blessed and honored that the president, uh, that the board, that Tom trusts uh, trust me for doing this. And then it was hard work, teamwork. We built the event team, which you have been part of it. Uh, we try to find people out of the sport who could bring us knowledge from other areas, which make our sport better. And people from the sport was a passion and commitment. And we try to make a sport that is interested for media, spectators and TV, which at the beginning was a bit of uh, uh, criticized by some top archers. But at the end, everybody understood that was for the benefit for the top archers for the sport. If we have more TV, we have more visibility, of course, it's better for, for our top archers. So when you asked me at the beginning if my experience in Olympic helped for this challenge, I would say everything helped. My experience as archer, I would have loved to be an archer when the World Cup started and not have sure. the double round FITA when I was struggling to be a robot and shoot 288 arrows like a machine. I would have loved to have the World Cup, the excitement, the, the matches, the spectators of TV. So as an archer, I was blessed to be able to do a competition or to work in the design or be part of it in a competition that I would have loved to be. As a coach, I also try to see in the point of view of the coaches, where should be the right position? What is the, the importance to be coach? You know, it was a chairman of the coaches committee and there was discussion that the coach should be out of the field of play like in athletics, like other sports, being in the spectator's area. And I thought for, for the sport, for the archer, for the coach, I think it's good. It's, it's close to the field, close to the athlete and have some interaction, something to do. So this kind of decision, when you are involved in the design or the concept of a, of a special circuit of a competition, I think the role of archer, coach, organizer, all of them help to, to, to make this, this competition, let's say, better and richer than what it is right now. 2016 saw the start of this effort with the first events in places like Dover, England and Croatia and uh, just great locations, iconic locations, Dubai, places that had great visual impact. But I, I think what people didn't realize at the time even was the effort required to put on each World Cup in a circuit of, of four or five events and a final each one of those events was comparable in effort to putting on a world championship. Yep. And that really drove world archery into a different place from the standpoint of competency, having to have not just yourself, but of course a staff to help with these things. 
it was a big sea change in our sport that I don't think people recognize today that you sort of take for granted. Yeah, there's a World Cup. Creating that and creating the infrastructure for it and creating the revenue flow required to make it happen, that all came together fairly quickly after long planning. But it really took off once it started, it seems, from, you know, from the perspective of an outsider looking in. Yep. It's a, it was a revolution. In, I would say the first big revolution I know since I'm in archery was the, the change that Jim did to save the sport with the matches. And I think the second revolution was the, the change that uh, Tom and Professor Urbe Bever, uh, our current president and the board took in making in two years, a year and a half, a completely change. Let's say that the distance from the shooting line to the target is the only thing we kept consistent, 70 meters. The rest, we have changed everything. Sure. Uh, where the spectators are, the noise, the sport presentation, television, cameras, uh, how we present the field of play, the colors. Uh, I'm insane. Target face and distance is the only thing that has not changed. The rest- But let's understand the there, was, there was a very intentive reason behind that kind of change. And, yep. and you, you touched on it earlier. Archery had 12 points that it had to satisfy to stay within the Olympic games. We did okay with eight of those points, but those other points, spectators, television appeal, sponsorships, ticket sales, those are the things that the World Cup was designed to help address and absolutely vital to our sport being able to stay in the Olympic Games. Oh, yes, totally right. And, and there was an effort by our president to make the war plan in 2005, 2005, yes. There was a war plan, was a strategy plan uh, created by, oh, in which uh, let's say that most of the federation, athletes, coaches had something to say. So it was a plan done by, by many of our archery family, which ended that in, in events, we needed to create a, a top events to, to show, to, to work in our weakness on the IOC evaluation. And the goal was that in 2012, make archery an Olympic sport without any question from anybody. And you know, in 2012, we were not only not questioned, but we were promoted to the next level of groups. There's groups in all the Olympic sport. And we raised from the group B to the C, I think was the terminology, but we yes. were promoted in the group, which means you have uh, not only the credibility, but also get a little bit of more money from the Olympic revenues to the International Federation. So. The war plan done by our president in 2005 and uh, was built a little bit with uh, the input from many of us, ended in a very successful position of our sport after, after London Olympic Games. And that was part of uh, the result of what we did in the World Cup and the change of the World Championship. And you were right, in, the, in our times, in the old times, there, was no, there were no finals. So an, an event was organized in a park or in a stadium and we finished with whatever number of arrows and that's it. And since 2006, we asked the organizers not only to make an effort for these five or four days in the qualification elimination, but then build a venue for finals, very similar to the one we have in the Olympics. That is completely an extra work when you need extra budget, extra effort, more people, and it's possible in an iconic place. We cannot bring spectators to our archery park. We bring our archery venue to where the people are in iconic uh, place of the city or in the middle of the city or in a historical venue to produce not only sexy images. And when I mean sexy means images that television like to show, but also to have spectators come in easy to, to see the sport. And uh, after, been very, and let's say, honor or thankful to those organizers in 2006, 2007, 2008, that they bought our concept. We were selling smoke. We were saying, we want to do this, 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 and this will be the outcome. But in fact, we never did it before. So they trust what we were telling them. We helped them as much as we could. We did many mistakes, but luckily we learned fast from our mistakes. And in 2007, eight, I would say we had a pretty good circuit with very nice finals which start paying off with very good images and recognition. In 2009 to 2011, we got a lot of recognition from all the international federation, from other stakeholders, and for people in sport, for, they were impressed what 
a small federation like ours, with a small team like ours, with a small budget like we had, we could deliver so high level event. So that's you think of something we, like Copenhagen in 2009, <laughs> and you know, there it is right in the middle of, of the, the harbor there. And yeah. we had a huge crowd uh, stacked deep on both mm -hmm. sides of, mm -hmm. of the venue. Um, nobody up, at the, up until that point would believe that people would buy tickets to be able to stand there and watch archery for four days straight. Um, you know, just crowds and crowds of people, huge economic impact in that area. Um, that was, you know, in some ways, the culmination of, of what you wanted. Yeah, that's where we, we changed from trying to convince organizers to do what we thought was good for the sport, our dream, to start inspiring people. Copenhagen was an idea of uh, people from Denmark, the, 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 the tourism office from uh, Copenhagen and uh, the, the local government uh, came to see Dubai. They saw the event and when they saw us making a platform on the middle of artificial lake in the Souk area from the Jumeirah group, they came to us and said, we also have water. Yes. <laughs> we, have, we would like to do this competition in this, the Nihaven. And I look in into the Nihaven and say, but guys, this is a, like, a, you have water. Where do you put the target? I say, no, we put a bridge. We build this, we build that. And that's when I realized that we don't need to convince people anymore. We have to stop them to come a bit too crazy. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, that was, I think, is the success. What we achieved is we had an idea and we got the right organizers and partners to make it happen. And then we start inspiring people. There was a moment in 2008, 9, 10 that anyone involved in archery was thinking in his or her city, the finals could be here. And suddenly everybody say, ah, I would like to make the finals in the middle of the downtown of my city. I would like the finals in this museum that is close to this place. So we start inspiring people. They were thinking everything was possible to put the finals in the place they love, in the heart of the city, in the heart of the place. And I think that was the, one of the biggest success we did. We start having people involved and inspired to do archery finals national championship finals, regional championship finals in the middle of an iconic place. And I think that's the beauty of, of this period, which now for the young archers, they, as you say, they take it for granted. But when they come from the time of you or me, having a final in the middle of, middle of town, downtown was more or less an impossible dream. And now it's very common. In fact, it's seen as something absolutely necessary, uh, you know, compared to the 90s. You know, there was... Uh, the world games in 2005 that I shot in, in Germany, um, that event, its finals were right there in a, a crowded area with uh, shops and bars and people coming out to watch. It was fantastic. And, you know, this castle and, and other things, that's the kind of venue uh, that would have been a fantasy for us to have discussed yeah. 10 years before. And now it's it's the it's it's considered to be the standard, you know. When you consider, aside from the pandemic issues, what Paris would have been like this year, um, you know, uh, and and will be in the future, the kinds of backdrops, the Eiffel Tower, the I mean, just all of the possibilities that nobody thought about before, because we have a safe sport that is one that is accessible, that people can understand readily because of the type of round that we shoot. That has really made a huge change from the standpoint of, of the presentation. That's real. We got in this time advice from people, expert, our television advisors say, guys, if you want to be on TV, there's two ways to do it. Or you pay for it, or you create images that pass any filter of people who select what images go to the news item. So that was a term of sexy images that our TV director, Cedric Royer, created. We have to get an image that if someone watches it, in five seconds, say, wow, archers shoot in a lake or archers shoot in the pyramids of uh, Egypt or, or uh, Mexico or archers shoot in the Eiffel Tower. That, that's an image that's iconic. So it passed the filter. And yeah. of course, after passing the filter, there's more interest on TV. Going into TV, being a, not Formula One or soccer or American football or tennis, it's very difficult. It's a huge competition. And TV has changed so fast since the 90s to nowadays. 
But in this time, it was important to pass this filter, and that's why we went into this place. I remember when I said, oh, we should make one in Dubai, in the Burj Al Arab, in the beautiful hotel, and people say, Juan Carlos, you're crazy, stop dreaming. That happened. And this time I say, I would love to have one in the Royal Palace in Spain or in the Eiffel Tower. And again, in this time was like, there's no way. Look, now it's happened in both places. So everything is possible when you have the right team, you have the right dream. And of course, the president, uh, Tom, the board that trusted. And we work together as a team. There's a huge trust in all this decision. I remember the Federation of, of Hockey that they asked, uh, several federations asked me to go and, and explain how we did it because they were impressed how fast we changed and how successful we were in, in these days. And they said, but how did you convince the president of the board to make the changes? I said, look, I don't have to convince them. They were okay. They wanted, they trusted us. I said, but how you achieve this? I don't know, ask them. The, the teamwork and the trust of Tom or and the rest of the board was huge. We could only do this because we work as a team with uh, trust in both sides. If not, it's impossible to make this change in two, three years so drastically and so efficiently. You know, the thing that you and I have in common is we both have worked in one way or another for Jim Easton. And, and <laughs> one thing about Jim always was that if you did a good job for Jim, his reward was not to necessarily say thank you, but to give you more work, you know, maybe a harder job to see, you know, what, if you can get it done, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, and I, as I was listening to you describe your situation there, I thought, yeah, I, I can relate to this in many ways, uh, you know, but Ur, uh, Erdner uh, seems to have much of the same characteristic. And so does Tom. Uh, once, once somebody gets something done, they become relied upon to do more. And, you continued to do more. Uh, 2008, you were the technical delegate for Beijing Olympic Games uh, after the success of Athens. And then you did it again in London and again in 2016 in Rio. And every one of those, as a, as a technical delegate, uh, you know that, that, that's a title, but that really means you get in there, roll up your sleeves and help lead the effort to get the event done. It's a big job and you were able to do it more than any other person in modern times. From that perspective, um, I, wanna, I wanna look at how this affected your life in some ways, because we talked about going to places like Dubai and going to places like Croatia and going to Paris and going to, you know, to Brazil and going to Beijing and going That's to so Japan. Well. El Salvador. <laughs> El Salvador. Uh, you know, all of these great places, but you were traveling 250, 300 days a year. And at some point, that becomes very difficult. Ah, yes. It's a, a little bit less. But thank you. Uh, between 200, 230 days per year for more or less 10, 11 years. Yes, it's... Uh, Let's say if you look at now backward is a sacrifice, but at the moment I was doing it with pleasure. Of course, friends and family suffer a bit more. You are not so much here. You have no social life. It's like a circus. You travel with your event family from place to place, deliver events. You make a very nice job, which is helping organizers to deliver the event better and to find solution for things that they struggle. Each of the organizer country culture is different. And I managed uh, good communication that they could feel me as a help, as uh, someone supporting them, me, and of course, the International Federation that has to make sure that events are delivering the level they expect. So it was tough, but it was 11 years that was, I would say, the best years of my life. I had so many friends that the smallest family around the world, from organizers, archers, coaches, the event team, all of you guys. It was part of my family, 230 days together in under difficult circumstances, working hard like hell, but happy because we were delivering something for Archer. We had the dream to make it better, more exciting. It's been fantastic. Now we look back, say, my God, you were crazy. But yes, that's part of the, the job, to be a bit crazy, to do things that no one else was able to do before. And uh, of course, the Olympic experience is, uh, is the next one, because when you go to Beijing, you have to work on certain Chinese standards, many translators, many people in meetings, signing all the documents, 
I never signed more documents in my life than in Beijing. But then you go to London, which is a lot of meetings where you don't sign anything, but each meeting changed the concept. And you go back over and over the same things, always trying to cut budget. And But it was amazing games. And we were in a fantastic place at Lords, where I don't know we have ever more spectators that these games in archery were full models every day. And uh, yeah. the fantastic voice that was you could uh, give this emotion. There was, there was energy in the stands every day. Even the rainy London days, we had stands full and with emotion it was a great outcome for the sport. And then we got to Rio, completely different, very challenges. Remind me a lot of Greece with all the challenges of time, deadlines, plan A, B, C, but the outcome was also fantastic. You remember the venue when you were there, say, so, my God, this looked terrible. And on TV, it looked like fantastic. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so uh, this uh, working hard with the organizing committee to make sure that the archery competition is one of the best in the games. It's not, a, uh, let's say, a burden or has been tough, has been an honor and a pleasure. And looking back, uh, I, I understand why I have so much white hair is all these <laughs> events. But at the same time, it's a kind of condecoration that uh, these events were successful and we put our sport in a better situation that, uh, that we took it. Absolutely. Since 2016, um, you have, along with the staff of World Archery, built the World Archery Excellence Center in Lausanne, state-of-the-art archery facility, which is... Uh, you know, the purpose of which is to grow the sport, uh, whether it's recurve, compound, barebow, uh, masters, any type of archery is the goal of, of the World Archery Excellence Center, which just stepped up uh, a week and a half ago, as we speak, to put on a World Cup in short notice. Hmm. Um, everything came together at the, you know, more or less 11th hour. Eight weeks. Eight yeah, <laughs> that's that's worse than the 11th hour. That's, that's 11 hours and 59 minutes as far as the usual schedule goes for these kinds of things. It's crazy. You wouldn't have known watching it on TV. I can tell you that it looked like it had been planned for years. But, you know, I, I know the reality behind the scenes a little bit. Yeah. But let's talk about the World Archery Excellence Center a little bit, Juan Carlos. Um, you know, as director of that facility, it does allow you to not spend quite as much time traveling as you used to when you were running all the events for WA, but there's still a lot, you know, contextually. Okay. Once things are back up and running again, as we recover from the past 18 months of whatever we've had to deal with, we are really looking at a true resource uh, for our sport and, and, and the goals that you set back in 2016 when the center opened are still as valid today as they were then. There's a lot to do in, in Lausanne with archery now. Oh, yes, there's, there's a lot to do in Lausanne. And let me say, it's a lot to do worldwide. Uh, we as International Federation and in the center, we, uh, we do our part, but we could not do all what we do without the, say, the support and the, the work as a teamwork from all our members and all the people involved in the sport. As I would say, like I mentioned before in the workout, we should be inspiring people and guiding them what we think is good for the sport. But we are a little different if we look uh, worldwide for the impact of our sport compared to other sports and other, other entertainment business. Because at the end, we are in entertainment business nowadays, competing to get young kids to join our sport instead of staying in front of screen most of the time. So yes, the Archery Center was a dream from uh, Jim Easton. He, again, he was a visionary and understood that was important for the image, for the credibility, for the, the understanding of our sport to have an Archery Center in the Olympic capital where the IOC and where the, most of the International Federation from the Olympic sports are based. So he created uh, the foundation and uh, donated some money for with the mission to to build an archery center in Lausanne, which the first question everybody asks is why Lausanne? Switzerland is expensive, it's not easy to bring people because hotels are expensive, everything is expensive, but it was clear that the IOC is here and the IF, International Federation, are here. So it's difficult to, to promote your sport when you want people to go to see it in another country. They have it just in front of home. So that was Jim Vision. And then of course, it was empowered by Uwe Dener and, and Tom and the board which took this vision and make it a reality. So they, they work hard to get the finances right, 
to get the permits. You know, Switzerland is very well organized, but to build something take time. So the sure. idea started in 2008. We got uh, things a bit on place in 2012. We started digging a hole in 2014 with most of the permits ready. And we finalized it just after Rio 2016, September. And it was officially open in December, 2nd December 2016. So the center was built first of all, to serve as a development tool for the International Federation to help the sport, which means many people understand that the World Archery Excellent Center, the excellent part is like elite. It's like we are working just with Olympic archers and trying to deliver medals. The fact is that the center is from grassroots, from a little discovered archery, the first initiation from school program for corporate activities that they try archery in their program to helping clubs, helping national teams, helping individual athletes, helping coaches, judges in the seminar courses, testing rules, testing material, up to the Olympic teams, Olympic champion to come to use the facility or get some services. We are right now an archer from Sri Lanka, the Colombian team. We had uh, last week the Norway, some, a couple of archers from Norway and from Belgium, staying after the World Cup to, to keep training here, preparing Paris. So this is a challenge of the center. We are not a center uh, supported by government funds or by the community. It's completely private by the foundation and, and World Archery, which oblige us to create, to generate income to compensate the cost to have it in Switzerland. So we have in the center from a commercial part, renting spaces for all the sport or getting corporate events or team building events where we are profitable. To, to do what is our corporate activities, which are our institutional programs, which is all what is related to archery programs and uh, getting more archers. George, in four years, we have more than 32,000 people trying the sport, trying archery in our center. So this is a huge number for a small community. And let's say that all the international federation based in Lausanne and the IOC, every staff, every department has been in the center with a birthday party, with a corporate activity, with a meeting, with a seminar, with an activity. So this is a huge uh, promotion for our sport in, in the place where many of the decisions in sport are made. On top of it, if we are able to have uh, help our members and our sports to improve in rules, in education and coaches, or to help our national federation or Olympic society program, we have three, we started having four archers from different countries where they could not practice there with Olympic Society Scholarship to train in the center. Right now is only one, Areneo from Malawi. So that's a help for a, the country for archers that are talented, that have no capacity to get a coach or a facility in their own country. So it's, a, it's an honor to be able to have a tool to help to develop the sport and provide services to the community, to the sport, to the archery family and to war archery. So it also, I, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's it also directly... Running. Sorry, let me let me back no up. It absolutely fulfills two more of those four points that we talked about earlier in keeping archery in the Olympic Games. Because of corporate involvement, that is in terms of team building and using archery as a tool for corporate team building, that kind of thing, opens the door for corporate sponsorships for our sport. A number of, 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 of powerful corporations are headquartered in and around Lausanne, and some of them have had firsthand experience with archery and understand its value uh, for sponsorship opportunities. The second aspect of the course is developing the, uh, shall we say, the culture of archery in terms of the average person being able to access it. and and. That creates, a, as you pointed out, grassroots opportunity to grow our sport that then leads to future spectators, future enthusiasts for our sport, things of that nature. So it's, it's, a, it's a bigger deal than just a building and a staff. It is really a tool for advancing the future of archery. Yep. And that's, that's how I see it. And that's, I hope that people perceive it. There's another, another part which uh, the centers play a role, which is exchange of information with other archery centers. So we have created a network with the Eastern centers in the United States 
which we have sharing our statistics of how many people come, what courses we do. So we are in a database of exchange information to learn from each other. We have helped right now five centers when they build. They ask for information from a sports center in Iran, archery center in Iran, from an archery center in, in Russia. In France, uh, we help another one with information about lighting, about safety, about how we keep running the activities or our discovered archery courses or start archery courses, which are scripted. And there are four centers just following the same script we are doing for the type of initiation we do. So it's another important tool to share knowledge of what works. Imagine you want to build an archery facility and you want to know what lighting is better. And if you go to each of the archery center on the world, the lighting is different. <laughs> so which one is the right one? or what surface to use on the floor or how you make it uh, less noisy. You know, in, in Chula Vista in the Olympic Center, there was a, a discussion about it was quite noisy when you have 10 archers, already a lot of echo. And in our center that was studied from the beginning because the architects were expert in building schools and they know about many kids shouting in a big hall. So this kind of knowledge uh, we have put together and we are happy to share for anyone who is interested or has a project to build an archery center to not reinvent the wheel, to share the knowledge we learn from other centers, to have a common place to have it and share it, to, to improve the facilities in archery worldwide. Something that we haven't touched on yet, uh, you mentioned at, at one time your girlfriend, Rochelle, later your wife. <laughs> yes. You have a son, Luca, who... Yes is an archer himself. I, I had the pleasure of seeing uh, you and Luca and Chris Marsh shooting, getting ready for the Vegas virtual shoot. I sure hope to see you all here, uh, you know, in Vegas next year. He's more but, a soccer player, uh, but he tried the sport. He tried archery, yes. <laughs> what's, what's your life like today, Juan Carlos, on a, uh, on a personal level? Uh, it sounds like it's much less stressful than it might have been 10 years ago when you were traveling from city to city with 300 pounds of suitcases and frantically running from one airport to another. I, having picked you up at the airport a couple of times, I can, I can say some inside baseball about the suitcase. <laughs> yes. That's to be honest, it's the same stress, but traveling less. Let's say that uh, my day is full of archery from the morning to the evening. And the reason of that is that uh, it's a new center, it's a young center. We are just uh, four years and a half, we are a baby. And we have many things that we want to do to make it more sustainable and, and if possible profitable for in some areas. So we have 10 staff in the center, but in fact, we work like 15 or, or 16. So which means everybody has to do a job and a little bit more. So my, my day is uh, I work the 40 hours that is in the contract plus many of the hours that is needed to make the center run and to be successful, to have the clients happy. We are a service oriented center, which means our goal is to make our clients happy. And clients means from uh, someone who went to the center wants to know what is actually about to any national team archers who wants to get the high-speed camera and have the um, delay view camera and know about the latest planning for the next two months competition until the, the kid who wants to do a birthday party and the parents who wants to go to the fitness when the kids are shooting. So that's make us orientated and flexible to any need we have. And that's, that's all, as always need time and, and care and effort. So it's busy. I would say when I was in the event, it was like a, a speed race. You run fast, 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 fast. You finish, you recover, and you go for the next event. This one in the center is like a marathon. You run, but you don't stop. You keep going, you keep going, you keep going. So in a medium or long term, it's as stressful as the event. <laughs> Sorry for giving you the bad news. But I have to say that when you enjoy what you do, you don't feel it so much. So I'm very happy what I do. I, I'm, I'm lucky and blessed to work in what is my, my sport and my love. So uh, it's, not, uh, it's not as bad as it sounds when I was telling it. But let's say that the days are busy and every day is a little bit different. Well, Carlos, those four decades of experience in our sport have had a bigger outsized impact than any one man normally would have. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to share with us some of your experiences. As you pointed out, 
we'll need three or four more podcasts to talk about each of those <laughs> Olympic Games experiences. But I, I think this was a good start. And I, I just want to thank you very much on behalf of our listeners for sharing your time today. It's uh, as we speak right now, it's 11 o'clock at night. Yep. You had a long day already. And yep. uh, I just want to thank you for taking the time to share with us some insight into Juan Carlos Holgado here on the Easton podcast. Thank you, George. It's always a pleasure. And uh, chatting with you is really like a siesta for a Spanish guy like me. It's a recovering time. So it was a pleasure. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to share my passion, my experience, my life. And I'm here for any time you want. Let's not make three people would sleep, but at least one about Victor Sidoruk and our training with a Russian coach in Spain. That's a full chapter. <laughs> Absolutely. Muchas gracias, Excellent. amigo. De nada, pleasure, and see you around. <laughs>